what's happening? I'm your man, Rashad Ritchie. Welcome to the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, we have someone uh, from Texas. This is interesting because of what's happening in Texas right now. I have Akila S. Wallace, executive director of Faith in Texas. Let's get into it. Akila, good day. Welcome. Good evening. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show as well. Maybe you can help make sense of some things happening in Texas. But before I get to Texas, this week marked the one-year anniversary of the death of our brother, uh, sacrificial lamb, George Floyd. His family spoke about what this experience has been like. The president of the United States, Joe Biden, he has given encouragement for the passing of the uh, George Floyd uh, Police Justice Accountability Bill, um, but no movement. Tell us about your organization, what you all do, and how does it interplay with what we're trying to get accomplished in policy? Absolutely. So I have the distinguished honor of being able to you know, serve as the executive director with Faith in Texas, where I am in deep relationship with clergy, community members, and lay people throughout Texas who are deeply committed to bringing the faith narrative and perspective to how um, the oppression and deep pain that Black people are and have been experiencing in this nation for quite some time must cease, um, and how our faith calls us to, to see it um, and to move into action. So when I think about today being the one year anniversary of the loss of our dear brother, George Floyd, and then the pain and anguish that many people faced, it is our hopes through our organizing and collective efforts that people are called to action. And for that intentionally in the ways that we are holding our legislators accountable um, at the local, state, and national level. So we have you know, potential bills that are stalled at the national level. And then even here at the state of Texas, um, Faith in Texas within collaboration with um, various coalition partners across the state working to pass the George Floyd Act. And just last week, we took clergy and their voices to the Capitol in Austin, calling for the passing, but yet our legislators um, are just not taking it seriously. And they're trying to find ways to kind of overlook the fact that there's violence against Black people um, at, the, at the hands of police and those who do not value our lives. And so for us, it's really important um, through Faith in Texas, as well as through the collective efforts of the Black women I organize with across the Southern region for us to call for policies, for bills that actually protect people. I have a fundamental belief. I believe that policy is a social contract between the community and the government. And at the root of policy, you can find real or spiritual dynamics, okay? Because it's about how you treat people. But let me pose this question to you because I'm a man of faith. I believe in God. I'm okay if somebody does not have the same belief I have. That is not required. But how is it that individuals of the same faith, we're talking about Christians, people of the same faith could have totally opposite value systems? How does that work? Well, I, I won't proclaim to be a, a theologian or you know, an expert in religion or a faith. However, from my perspective in organizing um, with multi-faith people um, or people from diverse uh, religious 
and spiritual uh, backgrounds. Ultimately, it, it boils down to the ways of which white supremacy within this nation has um, ingrained itself into the deep roots of society um, and how there are um, various groups within Christianity, um, specifically who uh, that are majority of white um, backgrounds, who unfortunately are taking advantage of scripture and holy text and, and words um, and reshaping them to really, you know, try to uh, maintain the power from which they are trying to uphold. And so we have people who are trying to maintain power, um, who are trying to hold on to legacies um, that keep white folks in positions of power and influence and continue to keep black and brown people marginalized. And so that is how faith is used to keep uh, us divided. And then also how it contributes to some of the policies and laws that people um, within, especially here in the state of Texas, deemed to be appropriate here even more recently them trying to um, revoke um, abortion rights you know i'm glad you brought up white supremacy i have a theory and here's my theory um i don't think they believe in the same god i think they i think their god is literally the god of white power and mm -hmm. not the white power that's echoed from poor individuals who still sleep on their mama's couch okay you're not my problem that person is not my problem i'm talking about the sentiment, the belief that the white structure or the white societal structure is the dominant structure because of some type of God design. I think they have literally made whiteness their God and anything that attacks whiteness or anything that attacks that power structure becomes the enemy to their God. And you see such extreme actions. You already, already know this, critical race theory. That's literally yeah. a way to teach history through the context of a theoretical framework. Uh, the, and the theoretical framework uh, is to look at race uh, critically. And they're saying, let's make that illegal to do, right? Uh, and you have individuals like the governor of Texas and others who are down with that program. Uh, we only have a few minutes uh, left. I, I got to talk about the legislation happening right now in Texas. Literally, there's a proposal which will be signed into law because y'all governor's crazy as hell. This governor is going to sign a piece of legislation which will eliminate your requirement to have a license to carry a gun. You can carry a gun in Texas, according to this proposal, without having a license to carry a gun. Talk to us about the gun culture in Texas, because it seems as if whiteness and guns are really part of their holy trinity. Yes. And so here in Texas, they already had the right um, to, you know, publicly carry a rifle. But right. now they're, you know, they're expanding it so that you can have um, handheld guns and, and others as well. I mean, I will have to say, I mean, it's quite um, sickening. To, to recognize and to see that like that is what, where they see and hold their power. And I also consider it to be a um, kind of really softened way of trying to uh, insert some level of threat and um, dog whistling to very specific groups of people here in this state, you know, for them to, 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 uh, to bear arms and that to, to prepare, excuse me, to prepare themselves for what they may innately be um, believe is coming in the near or late um, future as it relates to, you know, 
increase conflict. Um, I've even heard language around a potential race war. Um, so, but as people of faith, I, I just want to say, you know, through the organizing efforts and collaborations um, with the Black Women's, uh, the Southern Black Women's Collaborative across the, the South and the ways that we are intentionally um, organizing uh, Black people, Christian, Black churches, um, and other uh, Black and Brown faith communities, that we are deeply invested and rooted in the belief that we will win and that there's doesn't matter what your beliefs may be, what it, however you may arm yourselves, that we are armed with something much greater than what they may feel that they have and that we are positioned to be able to, to uh, bring about a new day, um, a new political party, a new way of believing in the direction of this nation and the and centering the voices of those most impacted. So you can arm yourselves and, you know, and continue to you know, go out this crazy rhetoric, but ultimately um, elections will be coming up in, um, here soon and we're continuing to grow and build um, black and brown voting bases so that we can ultimately change the ties of who is in positions of power um, in the state of Texas as well as across the South. And Akilah, that's the resolve required in order to transform policies. All policy in America comes from the same place. Some politician at some point Absolutely. has something to do with it, right? Uh, this whole issue and other states are trying to follow this whole issue with let's make carrying guns more available, uh, more readily accessible. Let's pass laws where you don't even need to have a license to carry. Remember, there is a constitutional right to bear arms. There's also a constitutional right. You have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, but every right has a common sense restriction so that the rights can coexist. When your right starts to interfere with my right of due process or interfere with my right to liberty. We now need common sense regulation in order to make sure these rights can coexist. Nobody calls that speech control. You can't say anything you wanna say. You can't put a hit out on somebody and then say, oh, I was just exercising my freedom of speech. That's a criminal penalty and it's, it's a criminal penalty that makes sense. What the governor and, and Republican lawmakers in Texas are doing, they are eliminating common sense barriers with constitutional rights and it's going to end up being a nightmare in Texas. Give out your information, how can people contact you, reach you, follow you? Yes, absolutely. I invite everyone to please follow Faith in Texas on um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, as well as you know to follow, uh, go to our website, faithintx.org. Thank you, sister. I appreciate please. you being on the conversation. Appreciate it. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. What's happening? I'm Dr. Rashad Ritchie and welcome to the conversation. We got a treat for you today. I have Ron James Jr., attorney and author, as a matter of fact, a best-selling author, legal expert. Uh, this guy has an extensive legal career, uh, graduate of Yale University and Duke University School of Law. Uh, practice law, two decades plus, Washington, D.C. area. Uh, he lives with his wife, two sons, great dude. Uh, but he has a new book, The Truman Court, Law and the Limits of Loyalty. We're going to talk about how the U.S. Supreme Court under Truman has parallels to the U.S. Supreme Court today. And we know a lot of justices have been appointed by former President Donald Trump. So I got a few questions for this guy. Um, Attorney James, thank you for being on the conversation. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Dr. Richie. All right. Let me first ask you, man, before we get into this other stuff in your book, expand the U.S. Supreme Court or do not expand the U.S. Supreme Court. What say you? Do not expand it. And it's not in danger of expansion right now. OK. Now, 
I agree with you 50% of that. I agree Democrats ain't going to do a damn thing to expand it. I agree with that. So that's the 50% I agree. Uh, do you have a fundamental belief in the institution as to why it should not expand? Because obviously we've expanded it. We've um, decreased it. We've fluctu uh, fluctuated a bunch of times with the U.S. Supreme Court numbers, right? So why do we need to keep it where it's at today at nine? Because I think there's enough work that can be done within the number nine. Um, examples that were floated during uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, ill-fated uh, plan to, uh, judicial reform plan is what he called it, but we all know it as the court packing plan. Um, there were ideas that Congress, Congress can pass laws that say that um, laws dealing with the Constitution, in order for those to be overturned on, on a constitutional basis, six justices must agree. They can put a supermajority on the Supreme Court. Um, Congress has a, has a good deal of power over uh, over the court, including, uh, you know, obviously over its size. I think there's enough that can be done within the number nine. Um, I don't think we're in danger of expanding it, and I don't think um, we should because um, no president controls whether or not he or she gets to appoint any justices. So let's say we went to 13, for instance, there's nothing to say that a justice might not end up appointing seven, uh, a president might not end up appointing seven justices. And then if the party in control does not like that, then do we go to 15? Um, it's it's just a messy business that the country has turned away from once. I don't think we'll get anywhere near that far this time because Franklin Roosevelt uh, had a lot of power, was at a uh, popularity peak in 1936, and even his own party um, in Congress was loath uh, to uh, closely consider it. Attorney James, that's exactly what they need to do. And I know you're saying this is a slippery slope, right? We're already on a slippery slope, brother. So yes, if you expand it, uh, it's, you know, people call it packing the court. I know the whole uh, campaign is that we're enhancing the court. We're making the court more responsive. That's a bunch of crock. We know that's bull, right? This is about political balance of the court. So let's argue it in that context. Let's, let's forget what Democrats are saying it is. Let's forget what Republicans are saying it is. Let's talk about what it's really here for. If you expand the court, Democrats would make this push for one primary reason. That is to balance the extreme conservative wing of the court. We have a court that is defined by the conservative side. They would like to find some balance there, right? Do you think there's an argument because the court, and this is according to your book, brother, has been politicized since Truman? And if it's already a political beast or a political institution, why all of a sudden in this era, we're saying let's stop playing politics with the Supreme Court if we've already crossed that bridge? Uh, well, first, I would just take issue with the um, the characterization, which which is what we read every day, that there are the, there's the conservatives are in control of the Supreme Court. No, the right wing justices are in control of the Supreme Court. Conservative just the chief justice is a conservative. Um, but um, Justice Clarence Thomas, for instance, is not a conservative. He's a right-wing justice. When one seeks to overturn precedents that are just four or five years old, or mm. overturn precedents um, with the uh, aggressiveness with, with, with which Clarence Thomas has said he wants to do so, that is the opposite of conservatism because you're not conserving anything. That's a you very good point, attorney. To yes. get where you want to go. Um, so I, th I think that's that's more than a, a uh, semantic point. And one one. Uh, point I'll give Justice Thomas is that he's honest about wanting to do it. He doesn't try to cloak it um, the way that I think particularly some of the newer justices try to do to continue to carry this mantle of uh, what they want to be perceived as conservatism, uh, when in fact it's just pushing an ideology and not conserving 
uh, yeah. what the court has been, uh, which is stare decisis and adherence to precedent. My man, you make a hell of a point. All right, Attorney James, let's talk about Truman. President Truman served from 1945 to 1953. This cat appointed 133 Article III federal judges, and his impact is still felt today. Tell us about the impact of Truman by using the court and using the court to uh, to uplift his political agenda and how that draws parallels to what the court does today. Well, president Harry Truman was the first to do now what we have come to expect of our presidents, and that is to use the judicial branch to advance and not just defend their political agendas. Um, President Truman uh, nominated uh, three justices and the chief justice to the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. And um, he used he used the, the Department of Justice through the federal judiciary to advance um, many of his civil rights, uh, um, his civil rights agenda that was being stymied and blocked by the Southern members of his own party in the United States Senate. And once he saw and accepted that um, the Senate was going to block any effort um, toward desegregation, he moved toward uh, executive orders and he moved towards um, judicial actions using the uh, Department of Justice in conjunction with the NAACP in working cases through the courts to reach the Supreme Court. And we see that um, uh, those tactics emulated um, by presidents of both parties to this day, the use of the uh, executive orders and the um, uh, use of the Article III uh, courts. And Do you agree or disagree with that method? Move their agenda. Do you agree or disagree with that method? I, I think it's necessary because Congress stopped doing its job. Um, so at least in Truman's time, Congress, um, the senators were saying, we are not going to advance this agenda because we are ideologically opposed to it. And these were the Southern segregationists. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, as is popular to say now, on the wrong side of history. The Congress today is simply broken. It doesn't do anything except name post offices. And I'm not even sure if they do that. So politics, even more than nature, abhors a vacuum. And in this vacuum, the executive has grown um, very much in power, but so has the judicial branch. It's grown very much in power. And so when the executive is able to work through the judiciary and bypass Congress, um, we get some of what we, again, have come to expect uh, in the American body politic today. You have a gridlock right now in the US Senate. I know I got a couple of minutes with you. You got a gridlock in the U.S. Senate. Obviously, they're not going to get rid of the filibuster. Massive legislation that could actually transform true policies. Uh, these are the real point of contentions, right? Those things are not going to really be bipartisan, um, bipartisan legislation. Do you think it is time for Joe Biden, the president of the United States, to start using executive authority and let the courts check his authority down the road if he is in fact in violation i i think he I think he should start using it where he can, but where he wants to move, um, particularly in the spending, he can't, um, he, he's not able to do it because Congress still has the power of the purse. purse. And so when the president does something as the uh, previous president, Donald Trump did, with diverting funds that had been allocated to the Department of Defense, using it for the wall, um, that just, it doesn't even have to 
even much go through the courts because as soon as the uh, party shifts, that money comes right back. And that's what they're working on right now at the Pentagon is reclaiming uh, a lot of this money that had been diverted to the wall. So when it comes to spending, which is really what the president wants to do, that's difficult to do by executive order. Yeah. You know, if I was president, I'd do it any damn way. I, I would feel, let me tell you something, man. That Biden is getting nothing done with this do nothing Congress. That is a problem. That is a big problem. And I say that in jest, but you know my point. I'm yes. getting irritated just like you are with a do nothing Congress and a stalemate in politics. And who hurts? People. Regular, yeah. everyday people are hurt by that design. How can people follow you, man? Pick up your book. Um, it's anywhere where you buy books. Um, you can find The Truman Court. And uh, I'm on uh, ronjames.com. Thank you, brother. I appreciate your attorney, James. Always a pleasure. Right. Thank you very much, Dr. Richie.